like to start our reflection today by giving you uh, just two questions to think about or some situations you might put yourself in to, to think about our topic. Uh, firstly, I'd just like you to imagine that you were able to attend your own funeral. Now, don't ask about how that would happen, but um, if you were able to go to your own funeral, what do you imagine people would say about your life uh, at that service? I've actually thought about this quite a lot myself because I've attended and conducted about 70 funerals since I was ordained and you have time to think about these sort of questions and it's in, in your face. Uh, so if you were at your own funeral, what do you think your eulogies would be like? What would people say about your life if they had the chance? How would your life be summed up by the people who know you best? So just let that simmer away, first question. Uh, second scenario, imagine uh, you are on trial for your life. Uh, and the outcome of this case depends on you giving a defence of your entire life and everything that you've ever done. Uh, on the basis of your defence, the jury is going to decide whether you're guilty or not guilty. What would you say in that instance? Perhaps what would your defence lawyer say for you to get you off? How would they convince the court to let you go free on the basis of your life story? Okay, so I want you to think, just have those two questions in mind. They're interesting questions, I think, because they place us in the seat of a place we find very dramatic, a kind of situation we find dramatic. Um, we love courtroom dramas, I find. They're very exciting and very engaging forms of movies or TV that people love. So, you know, because innocence and guilt and all these questions about who's, who's right, who's wrong, and the judgments that we make about them, they're very important to us and we find it very vivid and emotionally real. You know, how many times have you watched a movie and you're sitting on the edge of your seat, you know, when the uh, defendant is sitting in and then the jury files out, ready to say, we found a, a verdict. That's the tense, that's the high point, the climax of the movie. So I'm just that's, that's a sort of summary here because we've been working through the book of Job now for five weeks and we come today to a point in the book which is like those scenarios that I'm asking you to put yourself into and Job finds himself there. But first, for, for those who've missed what comes before, uh, Job we've seen in the, in the in the previous weeks is a dramatic story in the Bible. It's sort of around the middle of the Old Testament. And it's a story set up a, the situation of a respectable, wealthy man who is being tested in his integrity by having everything he owns and all that he loves taken away from him. And the question is, how is he going to respond to this? And whether his faith and his understanding of God will persist through this particular trial. That's the story of Job. And in the Bible, I think the purpose of the book of Job is to help us explore the question of why we suffer. Particularly, is there any relationship between our moral behaviour and the suffering that we experience in life, which is a common view. And the book of Job asks us to consider, when I suffer the way that Job does, or similar ways, what's going on? Is God punishing me for my sins? Or is some other thing happening? And we've seen in the last three weeks, there's these long dialogues between Job and his three friends who come to speak to him in his suffering. And they go back and forth on this question. And Job's friends are firmly of the belief that Job must have sinned, either unconsciously or deliberately, in order for this to happen to them. And so they have, this is their kind of theology of suffering, what we might call, their idea about how does God work in the world. So they believe, you know, we know God is good, God is just, he is in total direct control of the world, and therefore, in this particular understanding, everything that happens to us, including suffering, it happens for a reason that is fairly clear and we can easily know. 
because God has revealed completely everything about the way the world works to us. And so they believe, Job, you are suffering because you have done the wrong thing. And as we've seen, because of their beliefs, Job's friends turn out not to be very comforting presences to him in his grief. He calls them miserable comforters, we've seen. Uh, because actually they end up being accusing presences to him in his suffering. They're like prosecuting lawyers. They're trying to get Job to confess to what he's done wrong um, and to be convicted by the court. And so Job, this poor suffering man, has been put in the position of a defendant in the courtroom who needs to prove his innocence. So in the end, he becomes very agitated with this situation and his friends and he rejects their claims altogether and says, go away. It reminds me of the famous scene in A Few Good Men, you've probably heard about it. Tom Cruise pushes Jack Nicholson on the witness stand about his actions as a colonel in Guantanamo Bay and he says into the end to him with great passion, I just want the truth. And the response is, you can't handle the truth. I'm not going to do my Jack Nicholson impression, I'll do it up. <laughs> you can't, no, so I can't do it. You can't handle the truth. So Job's friends are saying to him, we want the truth. And he says to him, you can't handle the truth about my life. You can't handle the truth about God and about suffering. You'd have no idea what's going on. And so he denies that they have the right to ask him any more questions or to, que or to accuse him anymore. And so that's when we get to our reading this morning of Job's final defence. And we beginning, see the beginning of this time when he gives a summary of his life. He calls out to God to justify him, to respond to this situation that he's in, to justify his life. It's his big moment. He's sort of giving his own eulogy and also his own defence in a court against God. And after saying all this, in the end he says, I can only wait and see what God can say to this because I can't think of anything else. And so there are several chapters, 29 to 31, where he goes through a long speech about his life. And we heard the first of that in our Bible reading. Uh, where he starts off with a kind of mournful reflection on the good days of his life. That long period when he succeeded and did well in everything that he did. He had everything he needed. He had everything he wanted and everything a man could really want. Uh, and Job says oh, he did good with the things that he had and he made people's lives better. And so it's a kind of a eulogy. It's a good defense of his life. This is a good life I had. But then he contrasts these good days and months gone by with his present suffering, which is not just painful to him, it's also degrading and seems to cast light, a bad light on his previous life so far. Uh, he says, oh, you know, I used to be like a king. I was an honoured man. Everyone respected me when I came into the room. Everyone listened to me. But now, he says, he finds that there are these young ruffian guys who wouldn't even give him, you know, who, who wouldn't dare to come near him before. Now they come and make fun of him and no one stops them. That was the first verse of chapter 30. You know, he says, and people attack me now and they get away with it. Uh, I find myself constantly sick and feeling in pain and not getting any relief. Uh, and in this time, the worst thing perhaps is that God seems to have turned on him and not blessed him anymore. And so Job's kind of as low as, Job's kind of as, low as he can get. And he, he says at the end of chapter 30, verse 24 to 31, he gives this description, which I think is about as good a description of suffering as anyone has ever written. So Job sort of mourns and laments. He says, Surely no one lays a hand on a broken man when he cries out for help in his distress. Have I not wept for those in trouble? Has my soul not grieved for the poor? Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, then came darkness. The churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. I go about blackened, but not by the sun. 
I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I have become a brother of jackals, a companion of owls. My skin grows black and peels and my body burns with fever. My lyre is tuned to mourning and my pipe to the sound of wailing. It's pretty bad. Very bad. And so he says, this is so bad. And then he goes on to provide a defense of his life because he's got to to say, I don't believe this suffering is just and right as an outcome for my life, he says. So in the next chapter 31, he goes through his life in his memory and he examines his behavior and says, I can't really find anything that I've done that would convict me of being guilty before God and deserving what's happened. So because according to Job, he hasn't ever committed adultery or done anything of that kind. He's never stolen anything from anyone. He's never harassed or mistreated his workers. He's never been greedy and grasping and taken things that weren't his. He's never worshipped idols or other gods apart from the true God. He's never cursed his enemies even or gloated over them when they've gone bad and and suffered. He's never been indifferent to people who have needed his help. Um, And he's never even in all this been proud or haughty or contemptuous of people who don't have the things that he has. He says, I can't think of anything. This is his defense of his life. I'm a good man, done good things to other people with the good things that I've been blessed with. What's wrong with that? But his reward for that, it says, it seems to him, is that his life has turned from something good into something bad. And it seems like, well, God is punishing me or something's gone wrong. And he says, this is not right. So he kind of rests his case there. And he says, well, maybe God will hear me. Maybe I'll get an answer and a a verdict in my favor. And at the end of chapter 31, he says, he sort of signs off. He says, oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of every step. I would present it to him as to a ruler. So that's kind of the signed defense of Job. He summed up his life, given a a statement of who he is. He thinks, this is it. I've done it. And you think, well, what could God possibly say to this? What could be the answer that could possibly make sense of this situation to Job that would satisfy his his request? So, of course, we know, of course, if you read the beginning of the book, that, of course, Job was being tested for his faith, and that's the way the story is set up. But really, I think, by the time we get to this stage in the book, a lot's happened, and we're at a... The the setting that the story starts with has kind of faded away. And really what we're asking is, what does someone in this situation have to ask of God? Someone who is suffering and they don't know why. When there does seem to be no reason that is evident. What answer could there possibly come that could make us understand our suffering? And so this brings us back to where we started with the book of Job in first week, which is the classic problem of suffering. I think the book is meant to address this. And this is a problem that is very difficult for people who believe in the God that is described in the Bible and the God that we understand and believe in as Christian people. Um, It's a problem that a lot of people can know and describe, even very young people or people who haven't studied philosophy or theology. Um, What we're saying is, uh, and the problem goes as follows. So we say, we believe that God is all-powerful. So God is able to achieve whatever he desires and whatever he wants. That's the first. But God is also good and loving, and therefore what he wants and wants to achieve is good for people. Perfectly good. But we suffer, and evil persists in the world. Why? It seems those third sta- that third statement does not follow from what we believe and we say we believe about God. That's the problem of suffering. 
And I think how we wrestle with that problem tells us a lot about what we really believe about God, what we believe about ourselves, and what we believe about the world we live in. And the book of Job is about that. So we see Job's friends actually solved this problem to their own satisfaction by saying, yes, evil exists and people suffer, but it only exists so that God would punish it, and if you suffer, you deserve it. Perfectly answered. Logical. God exercises his power and his goodness against evil in a perfectly logical and understandable way. There's nothing left over. Now, that doesn't quite solve the problem if you think about it deeply enough, but it contains it in a place that makes it understandable and bearable for people. And that's what we criticise Job's friends for. They spend all this time trying to make sense of suffering in a way that is too simple, too simplistic. And that's the point of Job's defence of himself. This doesn't make sense. I can't be being punished for myself, for my evil. I haven't, I'm not that bad. It doesn't make sense. He says God has more to answer for than just that because Job knows in his own life it's not that simple. This is a problem for him because Job is an innocent sufferer. So how does that fit in with a God who is powerful and loving? So if you do want to resolve the problem of evil for yourself on an intellectual way, there are, one of the ways that people do it is by denying both of those statements that we make about the nature of God. So we might say, well, maybe it's, tr- maybe it's not the case that God is actually all-powerful uh, or that there is such a thing as an ultimate force in the universe that is in control. Perhaps the world is sort of a bit random and if there are gods, they're kind of like the pagan gods, you know, they're God-like but they're not God and they can't really stop evil even if they wanted to. Maybe that's what God's like. Uh, And many people have said things like that. And that resolves the problem of evil and problem of suffering, but but not in the way the Bible does. Uh, Perhaps there are two forces in reality, though. Perhaps there are two gods. One's good and one's evil, and they're both equally powerful. And so they can't really, they can't cancel each other out. So evil just keeps existing in the world forever. And some people have believed that. The dark side, the light side of the force. It's the Star Wars theology. They never, never balance. And that sort of solves the problem in one way. Uh, to deny that God is actually powerful and in control of the world. Or perhaps the other way, which is perhaps the option that Job would come to, and I think that many of us would be more likely to come to, is to believe or is to doubt whether or not God is actually good. Okay? So perhaps we say, well, perhaps God really is powerful, perhaps he is sovereign over the world, uh, but maybe he doesn't care about us. Maybe he doesn't really love us in the way we think that um, a perfectly loving God would. Perhaps many people have thought over the years, well, perhaps the God of this universe is a kind of evil, powerful God who keeps us trapped in it, in this universe, and torments us for some reason. You know, we're like people stuck in the matrix. We can't get out. Um, People have believed that. You know, maybe there's a real good God somewhere a long way away, but the God that we encounter in the world, perhaps he is not good. And so this kind of idea, the doubt that God is actually good, is the kind of the logical outcome of Job's complaint and his defence. Um... And it's the same feeling that any of us might have if we believe, well, I suffer and it feels as though God has been cruel to me. Perhaps if there is a God, many people would say, maybe we're better than he is, more enlightened, more humane and more kind. Because we look around the world and we think about the suffering and we say, if I had that kind of power, I would not allow these things to happen. And so to the extent that we're convinced or drawn in by God, uh, Job's speech and his defence, that's the kind of thing we might come to question, the goodness of God. How does that work? Perhaps if there is a God, he's not really as good as we say he is. So it's a real problem, and it's a problem that Christians need to wrestle with. 
because it comes out of our belief about God. So I'm not, I'm not going to solve that problem today, sorry. Maybe in two weeks' time we're going to look at um, what God says back to Job and how he responds to that accusation and how uh, he might think about it differently. But today, though, I think it's helpful for us more to hear and to feel the power of the complaint that Job makes to God. And what does it actually mean for us to say these kind of things, to actually confront God and our own lives with him and to question and to test what is real and God's character? What are we actually doing when we do that? You know, when we might say, I've made a defense of my life before God and I want to question whether what he's done with me is right. I think most people at some point have said something like that to God. Why? Why is this happening to me? Because I actually think this situation is a lot more complicated than it might appear to us um, on our first reading. It's worth thinking about and experiencing. Because this scenario that Job sets up with God is not actually a real one, or it's not really right in probably the deepest sense. It's a good picture to speak as though we're in a courtroom where I'm in the dock and God is um, taking my complaint. Um, But it is actually a mistake in the end to think about that, to think about it that way. It's just a picture. Because... You know, if God is God, if God is really God, there is actually no court. There is no higher law or principle we can appeal to and no judge who can make a decision between us and God in his justice. If there was, that person or that judge or principle would be God. That's what God means. Um, And, of course, you know, these self-defence that Job makes, the justification that we have in court, God doesn't really need to hear that, obviously, If God is God, then God knows exactly who we are. He knows our life. He knows our motives. He knows what we've done. He knows what's what. You know, God would know Job, of course, better than Job knows himself. So what's going on here? We can get a bit fooled by this picture of a courtroom to think that, you know, it's really us and God giving an account of ourselves, asking for him to justify himself to us or for us the other way. Somehow we need to represent ourselves to God. But I don't think that's really what's going on. It's a good picture to get us to a point But we need to ask, when I'm in that situation, what am I actually doing? Um, Because when we give ourselves an account of ourselves to God, what we're doing is different to that. We're not actually asking for him to give us justice. We're asking for him to listen to us. Um, And to, to think otherwise is to perhaps to lie to ourselves a little or misrepresent the truth of our lives. Because the fact is, you know, if you go to a funeral and you listen to the eulogies, they're certainly true always to be tried to be true but they usually just present one side of someone's life the good side which is of course good you know to remember with thankfulness the life of a person but we don't describe the whole of their life and everything that they've done we leave that out Um, and in court you know if you're being accused of something you present the good side of yourself we present your case in the best possible light and you leave aside the negative things you leave aside the things that cast doubt on your character and that really can't be the kind of case that we can present to God because, of course, you can't, be, you can't hide anything from God. You can't hide your life. Um, and I think Job perhaps was trying to do a bit of that, quite strong on how good he was, but we know that he probably wasn't that. But I think what we're really doing here, what Job is actually doing here in this defence of himself before God and what we're doing when we question God like this is actually trying to fervently break through in the experience of suffering Uh, to an authentic relationship and connection with God, you know. I'm in a situation I want to hear from him and I'm going to do everything I can to present the strongest possible case that I need to hear from God. And to do that, we think, oh, well, I need to in life. I need to understand myself. I need to get to grips with who I really am so I can talk to God about what's going on in my life and in my heart. 
I need to account for who I am and the kind of person I am so that God can uh, meet me. And so this sort, of, this sort of situation requires that we actually think about who we really are. Um, and who are we, you know, when we come before God? We're human beings, you know? And that means on the fact, on the whole, we're sort of a bit small, a bit weak sometimes. Sometimes we're smart, sometimes we're not. We've got limitations uh, and, we are on the, and we are actually dying. And we have all sorts of issues that are related to being the kind of creatures that we are. Um, in all the midst of that, we know we have the image of God. Our spirit is longing for so much more. But we are confused people. Often we are limited we are a bit um, confused about ourselves and about God. But we know in the midst of that, well, su- I'm suffering in the midst of this, though, God. And I need an answer about the kind of person I really am and why have you made me? And so I think what we find in this situation, as Job did, is I need to put everything out before God and say, well, what is going on? What is going on in my life? What, how, why did you make me the way that you, that you have? Why has my life had this story? What is the meaning of it? I need an answer. I need something that's going to satisfy me. Who am I? I can tell a story of my life, as Job does, but that's, is that true? Is that real? Is that who I really am? Is there more to learn about myself? Do I really know who I am? Because I feel like if I know who I am, I know God, I will know why I'm suffering and I'll feel a sense of satisfaction and purpose in it. Um, C.S. Lewis, who you may know from the Narnia stories, he was a Christian writer and he wrote a lot of books on spiritual topics. And he wrote a novel called... Uh, Till We Have Faces, and it's a retelling of a Greek myth called uh, that of Cupid and Psyche. And I won't explain the whole story here, because it's a bit complicated. Um, But the main character in this book, he writes, is a a woman, a queen, and she's actually, at the end of her life, sitting down to write a complaint against the gods, a book of complaint for how they've treated her throughout her life uh, and how her life has turned out, because she's not happy. And she believes, like Job sort of comes to believe, that perhaps the gods are unjust and cruel to human beings. Um, And in the end, she comes before the gods at the end of her life, before the judgment seat, and she she reads out her book to them. Uh, But she finds an interesting thing when she comes to do that, is that all she's actually written over and over again is a simple complaint. The gods are the gods, we are human, and they hurt us. (laughs) And she doesn't know why. But she, is, but, she can't, but she makes her complaint. And after this, after this experience, she, she reflects on this and she says, I made my complaint. It didn't, I didn't get an answer, but the complaint was the answer. To have heard myself making it was to be answered. And she goes on to say, lightly men say, talk of saying what they mean. Often when he was teaching me to write in Greek, the fox, my tutor, would say, Child, to say the thing, the very thing you really mean, the whole of it, nothing more or less than what you really mean, that's the whole art and joy of words. And she says, that's a glib saying. When the time comes to you at which you will be forced at last to utter the speech which has lain at the centre of your soul for years, which you have all the time, idiot-like, been saying over and over, you'll not talk about the joy of words. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly or let us answer. Till that word can be dug out of us, why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face till we have faces? It's a very deep thing to say. It's a complicated question. But I think in one sense the problem of suffering, as Job shows us, calls us to acknowledge that we are not God that we are created, we are human. And that is hard to do because it means accepting the limitations of our knowledge of God and ourselves and the possibility that we might suffer in a way that we don't understand for a while. 
Um, and that's something that Job, I think, teaches us. We need to bring to God and to work out with him the complaint that we have or the defense we want to give of ourselves. I believed for, for a while that one of the deepest tasks that we actually have in the spiritual life is to figure out, can I actually forgive God for creating me? Can we forgive God for making us? It may sound strange to, uh, to say that, but I think it's an actual feeling that we have. You know, can you forgive God for bringing us into a world where we will suffer, where we will struggle, where we will die? We didn't ask to be made, did we? Um, and it's a burden for us to deal with. And the question is, can I reconcile myself to the fact that God has called me into existence partly so that I will suffer in many ways? It seems that to exist is perhaps to undergo suffering. Can we forgive God for, for doing that to us? Um, this is something that human beings need to come to terms with, and it's not very easy, um, but it's a big question. And we can see in the life and death of Jesus himself that even as a human he was, he felt this resistance to suffering and the need to face it with God, his Father, and to wrestle with the will of God that called him to suffer on his journey through life. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, of course, we know Jesus wept and he sweated blood, saying to his Father, please, if you can, take away from me the cup of suffering that you've given me to, to drink. And all of us have that cup in many ways. Not as much as Jesus, perhaps, but we all have it. And on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you put me through this? Did, you know, why do I have to go through this? It's a question. And so I think that's Job's cry here. That's what he's doing in his final defense. Why, God, do I have to go through this? Why did you make me and leave me to suffer? Why did you create me on the first place if this is how it was going to turn out? That's a heart question, isn't it? <laughs> Very strong question to ask God but a necessary one. And I think so when Job brings his complaint to God, I think he's just asking, as all of us probably will one way or another, um, for a recognition that God knows and acknowledges that I am suffering and that there's something perhaps going on that is going to give it meaning and is going to make it make sense to me. It's not about our case against God, Job's, you know, that Job makes. Our, our case against God is probably not as watertight as we think. Um, we're not as good as we think we are, and people might say nice things about us at our funeral, but there's other things that they don't say. Um, but we do need an answer, though, to this question, God, what's going on? What's my life? I think Job reminds us it's important for us on our path with God to put ourselves in a position where we are actively seeking an answer to this question and wrestling with our fundamental relationship with God. Can we come back and forgive him or reconcile ourselves to the fact that he made us and the life that he's given us? Can we open our hearts to him and say, look, this is I want to know and I trust in some way that there is an answer. And I think this is where, as we will see in Job, that that's where God actually meets us. That's the place, one of the places at which we encounter God, when we're actually asking this question in a deep way. When we're honest enough, you know, as C.S. Lewis said, you know, to put on our face and try to meet God face to face and say what's really in our heart um, and to really question him. Not to turn away or to take easy answers uh, to put ourselves in a position to receive what I think Job will say is the only answer that I could possibly receive which is that God will actually answer and I will experience an authentic connection with him that's not an intellectual answer that's an experience and that's what Job is seeking and we take comfort I think that that's the answer that Jesus found in the garden and that's why he went to the cross because he had this unshakable trust 
in his Father, in his infinite power, but also in his infinite loving goodness. And I think this is the, the struggle that Job is, is calling us to, to take up ourselves.